0: Darrell Island is the Research Assistant Professor of Mission at Boston University. He spoke with us about Christianity in China, the troubles it has faced over the years, and the hope he sees for its future. So Darrell, how did Christian faith become a part of your life?
1: I actually grew up in a Christian home. My father was a pastor, my grandparents were missionaries. So it was very much part of everything I lived and breathed from the very beginning of my life. But it really became alive for me when I'd gone through a period in university where I thought, I really need to escape this little world that I've been trapped in. I'm not sure that this is the real world. Mm. And so I actually had fled, if I can use that word, all the way to um, South Africa. I thought this would get me into something real, and only to discover that what God is doing in Africa is perhaps even more impressive and awe-inspiring than anything that I was experiencing at home. So thinking I was running from God, I ran right into God and had an incredible awakening of faith and really a call into faithful service to Him.
0: Now, did that call lead you into the study of mission?
1: Yeah, it did. So from that, I I came back to the United States where I had been in college and changed majors. I'd been a physics major and I decided, wow, I really want to be prepared to do what God's called me to do. And then piece by piece was drawn into this incredible work that God is doing across boundaries and different cultures and found myself being led into that place. China, why are you
0: interested in China?
1: Yeah, that really comes more through my wife than anything else to begin with. We moved to Taiwan and it was while there that I really did fall in love with the place. The the people were just exceptional and the vibrancy of the church while small in Taiwan was really incredible to me and, and it began to dawn on me that maybe there was a relationship. No one could get by being sort of a cultural Christian mm-hmm. in Taiwan. You had to be able to name your faith and live for Christ in a way that was visible to people who had already sort of put you at a distance or were suspicious of your decision. So exploring China, how did Christian faith first come to China? Yeah, well the history in China is really quite remarkable. I like to tell my students that you need to remember that the first missionaries to hit China arrived almost at the exact same time that the first missionaries hit the United Kingdom that we, we don't tend to think about those as historically simultaneous moments, but they were within 30 years of one another. Um, and so you have these missionaries arriving in China in around 635, just really early, being sent by the bishops and um, somewhere in the Middle East. We can't identify exactly where they came from, but somewhere in the Middle East with this message of Jesus. Um, and they called it the luminous religion, this religion of light that they were bringing into China.
0: How did they get there?
1: So they followed the Silk Road, this common trafficked area that many people, traders and armies and others had used for centuries. that really linked the Middle East, Central Asia, and East Asia, and they just followed those routes right into the capital city.
0: And there's, there's still evidence that of of the, those people.
1: Absolutely. yeah, they're in fact, There is now in the city of Xi'an an an enormous stele. It's about nine feet tall. It's larger than, much bigger than I am. And it it writes down the history of these missionaries and their arrival and their reception by the emperor. And so that's really where a lot of our historical facts come from. But it's not just this huge block, this giant stone, um, but they also have, we have various um, books that were written as these early missionaries are beginning to try to express the gospel in terms that made sense in a country that was becoming increasingly influenced by Buddhism in particularly, and so that you find them trying to reach for terms that can make sense of the gospel for someone who can really only grasp a spiritual life in Buddhist terms. And so it's a fascinating um, world to enter.
0: And now it's a few, fair few years before the next group of missionaries arrive. That's
1: right. So. That this, this group actually flourished for some time in China, maybe about 200 years of Christianity and its spread and growth, um, but they got caught in a larger backlash against foreigners, and so the church was largely decimated as a, as a response to that. Not that it was only foreigners there, but it was seen as a foreign religion. And so the next, you have these small waves, one or two missionaries coming in or during the Mongolian empire that sort of spread all across Asia and into, into Europe. You have Christians sort of beginning to funnel in in that large global era. era. But really the, the gospel comes in a more intentional and sustained presence um, in the 16th century, around 1583 is when the first missionary has this moment where he's actually invited back into China. So that group were the Jesuits? That's right. So the Jesuits arrived. They'd been trying to get into China for some time. They'd been working in Japan. They were down in this island of Macau, just off the, the Chinese coast, for a number of years, maybe 30 years. And finally, they had this invitation to go in. And so the, really, the first missionary group was led by Matteo Ricci.
0: Now, he's a unique character, isn't he? And what he did in China was unique. Yeah, he's really remarkable. This
1: He had an amazing capacity to learn and absorb the world around him. And so he quickly assessed what was going on in China. And early on, he noticed that people who were religious figures were these Buddhist monks. And so he adopted their dress and tried to look like them, act like them. But he eventually discovered that this was sort of a dead end, that at the time, Buddhism was seen as sort of on the outs of uh, sort of fringe characters, maybe a little bit of suspicious even characters, maybe more interested in your money than your soul. And so he ended up adopting a completely different style and he took on the dress and the clothes of the Confucian scholar. And he was such a success in that, um, not only because he really learned the Confucian classics, but also because he had this great party trick. These elites would have him over to their house and they would maybe cite a long poem in Chinese and when they finished, he would be able to recite it back to them exactly as they had read it. Wow. And then not only that, is, would they say, wow, you've got a great memory. But he would start from the poem at the end and read it net, and then say it to them backwards, <laughs> word for word. And that just made him a hit. So people loved to have him around. And that sort of fame, that kind of popularity gave him new opportunities, new open doors, eventually even got him a connection with the emperor.
0: What do you reckon motivated Richie? Because that's, that's really unique for that time. right? Yes, he he and
1: this early group of Jesuit missionaries decided that in East Asia, they were not going to just reproduce Christianity as they knew it in Europe. They were going to have to do something different. They were entering cultures that were extremely sophisticated and complex and had long histories. So they needed to find out How has God already been active and working here? And so Ricci, for instance, begins to use a name for God that had been in Chinese texts for over 2,000 years and says, God has been here. You've known him as heaven or the Lord of heaven. Now let me tell you more about him. So Ricci got an
0: invitation to the emperor?
1: Well, he was able to make it into the, the imperial court. And this opens up a new phase of missions, primarily because it gives permission for other missionaries to come. Though, what we tend to talk about is from that point on for over 150 years, we have Jesuit missionaries working in the imperial court because they were bringing in new ideas, new knowledge. They were helping construct the calendars in China. And so they became part of this ruling class that were charged with um, gathering important
0: information for the country. Do you think it's odd that we often Congratulate ourselves today about being great contextualizers for the gospel. And yet, here are these Jesuits all these years ago doing exactly that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I, you see a fantastic model in the Jesuits. And if I can even go back to those early missionaries in the seventh century, they were even really pushing for contextualization, trying to find ways to talk about Christianity in terms that made sense to the Buddhists. Yeah. And so, I mean, we are not the inventors here. We have a great tradition of others who have
0: pioneered this. One of the next great characters coming into China was, uh, was Hudson Taylor. What was different about what he did? Yeah. He's really an amazing
1: man. Protestant missions in China had largely found themselves gathering in Western-controlled parts of China, where, or at least where there was a lot of Western influence, and they would begin to recreate little Western enclaves and invite people into those, to the church that were based in there. And it was very much sort of, you come to us. And Hudson Taylor breaks this mold and flips it on his head and says, no, the gospel is going to you. And so he leaves the compound, he grows out his hair and puts it in a ponytail and Chinese fashion style adopts the clothes and of course becomes wonderful in the language and has this really light and flexible ministry that can go inland. And thus he names his his mission, the China Inland Mission because he's moving into places no one else has gone before.
0: It was interesting, it seemed that Hudson Taylor was very Um, successful at gaining more people to join what he was doing. Yeah, he
1: was a compelling man. Uh, So he has this incredible personality. I mean, just think of the number of missionaries who was able to bring into China to be part of the organization with him. So he, he has a certain charisma, but there was also this openness to other people that I think the Chinese found particularly disarming. There was a sense of, for years we've been told, if we are going to become Christian, we have to become like you. And here's this man who says, my goal is to become like you." What an honor he was paying to his hosts in China and really a remarkable gift he was offering them, the gift that's given for you as
0: you are. One of the unique things Hudson Taylor did was actually involve more women than most other missionary organizations.
1: Yeah, the transformation of the lives of women through the gospel in China is one of the most undertold but most fascinating stories. And Hudson Taylor is very much right in the middle of that, along with other Missionaries. But th- there is this idea that women are critical uh, people in this work of God. They are not someone that are just behind the scenes. They are very visible players. And so Hudson Taylor sees them as Bible women, which means that they are equipped to go and to not just spread the gospel, but also disciple other people in the gospel. But what he didn't realize, I think, is all the repercussions this would have. For him, it was really an evangelistic move. We need women to be able primarily to talk to other women who were locked away from men. But what he didn't know is by making them Bible women, they needed to learn the Bible. Well, almost no woman in China could read. And so now you have this new literate class of women emerging. And not only that, but in order to do that, they, he gives these women maybe a little bit of money, or, or allows them to raise some money to go and do their work, to travel to the next village, to hold a, a, maybe a little revival. And with, as they're doing this, they are, for the first time, having control of their own resources. That had always been the domain of men, and so now you have this sort of economic independence that these women were experiencing in a tiniest way. It was for the work of God, but they were having this new influence and power there. And then of course, in the end, what becomes really interesting is sometimes these Bible women were proved to be such effective messengers of the word of God that Taylor and others were saying, would you go and start the mission? And if your husband and family needs to go along, that's okay too. But this is such a reversal of Chinese expectations that it's the man who's the lead and the woman follows. And now you have this fascinating move where the women become really prominent. And in fact, in China, they they become the most, the largest number of believers are
0: women. The Boxer Rebellion was, was a very difficult period for, for mission. What was the Boxer Rebellion and why was that difficult?
1: Yeah, so the Boxer Rebellion it happens in 1900, right at this turn of the century, where China had undergone a number of significant setbacks. On the international stage, it had gone through a series of humiliating losses and wars. Um, both with Western powers, but now most recently to Japan, which is always seen as sort of the little brother. How humiliating is that? But then also a number of natural disasters that strike in the nation. And so people were desperate and there were a lot of questions. Why is this happening to us? I mean, China in the the language means the central kingdom. We are the center and the center is beginning to shake. Mm -hmm. What's going on? And so some groups, which had always sort of been practiced in many parts of China, they would have sort of local militiamen that would sort of take care of their village, their area. They began to band together, and they wanted to restore order to the region, to China itself. And as more and more grew, they become sort of a de facto army. And they began to move from just restoring order, as in we need to bring peace and stability in the midst of the chaos, to actually restoring the way China used to be, and that was without Christians here. And one of the rallying cries was, it's your foreign god that has brought this judgment on us because the Chinese gods have been insulted that you would turn to someone else. And so there became this idea of we have to expel the Christian presence. And they moved very swiftly through China and what they did as they went about is they would round up many Christians and they would kill them. Mm. Now, we often talk about the missionaries and indeed around 250 missionaries lost their lives. But the estimates for Chinese believers is close to 20,000, mm. maybe 25,000. So it's a much larger scale. A lot of people gave their life for Jesus in these Boxer Rebellion.
0: Interestingly, the, the theme through China is that it's, it's about your it's about a foreign God and a foreign power. It wasn't really a question of what you believed. It was the fact that it was from a some, somewhere else. Yeah, there is a
1: continual theme of that. There's a sense of if indeed we are the central kingdom from which really all good things flow, then how could something true come from outside? And not only that, increasingly it becomes dangerous because how are these outside ideas connected to outside powers? that? especially through the 19th and 20th centuries, began to seem more and more interested in breaking China up. And so as China begins to lose control of some of its land, like in Hong Kong, we may remember famously now, and other places, then there was a sense of, this is a foreign predator who's coming under the guise of Christianity, but really you just
0: want our country. Yeah, that, it settled down after the Boxer Rebellion. What was the next 100 or more years yeah. like? It's been,
1: in some ways, a repetition of similar patterns. Right after the Boxer Rebellion, you see actually one of the fastest periods of growth in Chinese Christianity. There was a sense, I think, of many people, and as the Boxer Rebellion fails, that China as we've known it is gone. We can't go back like the Boxers had wanted to. So what does it look like now? Maybe it's finding a new way forward through this Jesus we've been hearing about. And so you had this real quick growth of the church for about 20 years, but then a new anti-Christian movement erupts and a a, a real wave of oppression hits and the church is is staggered by this um, and sort of stumbles through, not completely shrinking. In fact, you saw some incredible revivals in China in the 1930s and 1940s and the church is growing in this new kind of energy and dynamism which was important because this was being led now by Chinese Christians. They have become really the leaders of the churches, which must have been God's preparation in some ways because in 1949, the situation changes again and outsiders are now Forcibly removed from the country.
0: Now in, in 49 there's the revolution That's and, right. and all missionaries are expelled. That's right It didn't happen
1: overnight It wasn't as if the communists came to power on October 1st and on October 2nd everyone was on the boat takes several years um, for missionaries, but they were then systematically removed from the country This was going to be a closed China to the world um, and Christians were left wondering what what happens now
0: and and Christians from the west or the other parts of the world had no idea What was going on? But what do we know now? Uh, from history about what was going on in that period. Yeah, Yeah, it's really a a
1: remarkable transition. So a number of things happened. Some Christians were quick to move to the government and say, you have promised us freedom of religion. What does that look like here? Mm. And so new churches were erected that the government had sanctioned and said, you can meet here as believers, but we're going to have to reduce the number you have a lot of different churches and you call yourself Lutheran, you call yourself Methodist, you call yourself Pentecostal. We're just going to call it the Jesus Church and this is the Christian church. This is where you should meet. And so churches were shrunk down. And some Christians, of course, felt that this is government interfering with things that they shouldn't. So they refused to even attend those churches. And so you had what begins the underground churches in China. And their experience is, in both cases, was, was choppy. There have been times where sometimes people think, well, if you join the state church, that was the weak way out. Mm-hmm. You were accommodating somehow to this new communist authority. But as after I've met a number of those pastors who were part of making that decision back in the 40s or the late, in, in the early 50s, I've really come to change my mind. I realized that when the government began more systematic persecutions of the church in the 50s and then again in the Cultural Revolution in the 70s, it was really easy to persecute the, the government churches because they had a name of all the leaders already written down. They were the very first people being
0: arrested. Yeah. And then the house churches would usually follow after that. And, and so in the 50s and 60s, there were arrests. Uh, pastors, church leaders, and Christians were put in jails.
1: Yes, they were, um, and again, whatever I say about China is true somewhere, but it's not true everywhere. So in local places, there could be real intense persecutions of pastors, people being arrested, being sent to re-education camps, work camps, Um, and other places, maybe the church continuing to operate somewhat freely, at least until the Cultural Revolution, which begins in 1966. Then the government decides that it's going to be a lot more systematic nationally on this, and by 1976, every church in China had been closed except for one that was only open to foreigners. You had to have a passport to walk in that door.
0: In the late 70s, early 80s, China opened up again. What did those going back find? Because there were those who thought there would be no church right. left. Right. What did they find? Just an incredible, um, dynamic and vibrant group of
1: Christians who had not only survived but had now were actually multiplying at unbelievable rates. Um, I remember talking to one pastor in particular who had been jailed for some time, and the way he talked about it was remarkable. I can't reproduce it, but there was an ebullience about him as he told about his days in jail, and not because he wanted to make me understand, oh, look how I suffered for Jesus. He was trying to communicate to me that it was an evangelist's paradise. What were they going to do to me, throw me in jail? You know, he was so excited that he had a captive audience for the 10 years he spent in a, in a coal mine um, where, and then back in a prison cell during the evening.
0: It's remarkable, isn't it? And the church itself is a vibrant church. Oh, it's amazing.
1: The, the energy um, of the church in China, having gone through this experience, I think has increased the intensity of devotion to Jesus Christ. That... This is one for whom we have been willing to give up our life, and we now live in thanksgiving to Him. And there's always a sense of, we don't know what tomorrow holds, but we know that we have a faithful Lord who is with us through all things.
0: Numbers are difficult. Is there any way of picking the numbers?
1: It's really challenging because there are official government statistics which tend to count just those in the registered churches, the ones that the government is open and runs. And their numbers will put, you know, help us get us in somewhere between 25 and 40 million believers. But by all accounts, the house churches or the underground churches are much larger than that. So I tend to think that we're probably talking around 75 to maybe 85 million Christians.
0: And there is talk that this will become the largest, the country with the most Christians anywhere in the globe. Right.
1: Yeah, it's really amazing that already I think we can say with confidence that on any given Sunday in 2019, there will be more Chinese people in church than there are um, people in church in anywhere in Europe or Europe as a whole.
0: Now, the church in China is actually looking to do mission itself. It doesn't see itself as just a place receiving missionaries. Right. Now, it sees itself as a missionary and they do it in unique ways. Yeah, absolutely, they are so committed to taking this gospel
1: everywhere they go. And when I've talked to them, I never hear them Talking about it as a mandate, like this is something we have to do, Jesus told us we have to do it, so let's go through the motions. This is what happens when you believe in Jesus, is you have to tell other people about it. Why would you be so foolish as not to? And so there's this incredible push internally to go. And I love one of the, the, the places where I've been meeting a group of young people who were training to be missionaries and during the daytime they would have their they were learning how to cut hair and so they were getting a degree in hair cutting as barbers but then in the evening at school they would gather together and they would do bible study they were studying mission theory and evangelism and then also a, a foreign language in this case they were studying urdu together and at graduation they were handed a diploma that said, you are now certified in China to cut hair and given a pair of scissors. But then they were also given sort of a silent charge that said, and now go in the name of Jesus Christ with these scissors to the ends of the earth. And the idea was wherever you go, you can always find someone who needs a haircut and that can buy enough rice for you to walk to the next town and then to the next town and then the next town until you reach somewhere like Pakistan where you can be a missionary for Jesus, cutting hair and sharing the good news. So Hudson Taylor's idea of traveling light and being very mobile, you see it now reproduced in this church that's moving across Central Asia and South Asia.
0: When you think about all the strategy, money, controls on mission from a Western country, that's a unique picture. (sighs) It's so totally different, and I think it helps us understand that God's mission is far bigger
1: than our missions. The way that we have organized them and constructed them, assuming that all our missionaries need a certain base salary and insurance and cars and computers and all the other things that we have come to associate with doing missions well. Then you look at someone who's 20 years old and has a pair of scissors, and you say, maybe we've need to rethink some of what we're doing, and maybe they have something that they can learn from us as well, that we are on this mission that God has for us together.
0: What was it that Jesus said that helped motivate Chinese Christians to be involved in ministry and mission? Yeah, I've wondered that because I don't hear them just standing up and
1: saying, giving the great commission or something like that. Nor do I hear them turning to something like in John where Jesus says, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. I think it's the life of Jesus more than any particular words that he himself had said. There's a sense of which, as Jesus goes on mission, how could we do otherwise? He goes and we follow.
0: And so I think there's a sense that they're moving with his spirit. Christian faith now is is a global, geographically, it's a global religion. And Jesus said, go to the ends of the earth. We've we've sort of got there. (laughs) What does the phrase to the ends of the earth mean to you?
1: I still think there's a really important line between faith and unbelief. And and crossing that boundary is still a boundary I think Jesus invites all of us to be part of.
0: And taking that good news into new territory in that sense is critical. And finally, last question. This series is called Jesus the Game Changer. What does the phrase Jesus the Game Changer mean for you? Historically, I think about
1: how Jesus has introduced something new wherever He goes. And when Jesus is named in a place, how you see not just a new community formed, but new prison reforms enacted. Or you see new orphanages started. You see people reworking their art and their laws and their architecture. Everything becomes somehow new, not perhaps kingdom of God new, but yet it's radically different than what it was before. And I think that comes out of who Jesus himself is. This is one person that people didn't just say, who is he? They even began to ask, what? is he? And there's something about Jesus as God becomes who comes into our presence, God with us, who is so radically new that he changes everything.